A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling choicy adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us in the section that we're reading. And in that, this is the wrap-up episode. So if you haven't finished the book, don't listen to this podcast. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. Uh, yeah, and this time our book club got one member bigger. Yeah, yeah. So for today's very special episode, we will be discussing the entirety of the first book in the Red Rising saga titled Red Rising. Uh, To do that, you've got PJ and I and our very first special guest. Joining us today will be Bing Bong Shaw, Crossland's younger, better, smarter, smarmier brother. You can follow him on Twitter because he thinks he tweets funny things sometimes. Oh, it's, uh, it's great to be here. Please follow me on Twitter and just know that I am single still. So market's hot. <laughs> what, what, what is your Twitter <laughs> handle? My Twitter hang, handle is uh, Bing underscore butt underscore. <laughs> I had to change it because uh, I was applying for professional jobs and those tweets cannot be on my resume. Uh, <laughs> so fair. B-I-N-G underscore B-U-T-T. B-U-T underscore. Okay. We'll, we'll, put it, we'll put it in the show notes right, for right. sure. Bing underscore butt underscore. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's uh, let's go ahead and talk about what we're drinking. I think it's appropriate to start off with our guest. What are you having? All right, so I started this evening off with a dead Nazi shot, which has got to be very popular in the current climate. So that is equal parts Jagermeister, 151 rum, and Rumplemints. And just kind of to get the juices flowing, following <laughs> our dead Nazi, we have a kamikaze just to really hit home our World War II themes, it's equal part <laughs> lemon, triple sec, and vodka for a full-on kamikaze. I made three of them so that this night ends painfully. <laughs> and you, you did mention you've got some beer to follow that up, correct? Oh, I, I do have three beers to my right ready to be slung back. They are classic Shiner Box. Nice. Yeah, you are Excellent. in Texas at the moment, correct? Yeah, You're yeah. In Shiner territory. In exactly perfect shiner territory wow yes well pj what are you drinking um i don't know what to call it this is i in the show notes i put it as coffee motherfucker um it's two uh two ounces of cold brew coffee two ounces of kettle one vodka one ounce of kraken dark roast which is their coffee rum and then half an ounce of simple syrup. I actually went a little bit lighter on the simple because it was a sweetened cold brew that I brought on mm. accident. So it's terrible and I don't want to drink it. So instead I am uh, making cocktails out of it. So we'll see. You're how still that drinking it. <laughs> I don't want to drink it straight like I would normal coffee. That, I do have that's fair. a shot, which we usually do before recording. We're doing that today on air. Yes, with Bingham. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What so, are what are you shooting? I'm shooting uh, that Templeton Rye that I talked about last week. <laughs> nice. To follow that up, I've got a collaboration brew between Drecker out of Fargo, North Dakota, and Witch Hunt Brewing Company, which I can't remember where they're from. I think somewhere in the cities, though. 
somewhere mm-hmm. in the Minneapolis area. But this is Season of the Witch, Manganata Sour with mango, chili, lime, and salt. So I'm excited to give that a shot. Wow. Mm. And that rounds me out. What have you got, Cross? I am just pretty much drinking straight whiskey tonight. Um, <laughs> I am having my one of my favorite scotches, probably my favorite scotch on the entire planet that I've tried so far, which is a Balvany 14-year Caribbean cask. It drinks so deliciously smooth. So I've got some of that in front of me. Uh, and then I've got, for my shot, I've got Bullet Rye. And then to kind of chase the whole thing down, I've got Levante Brewing out of Pennsylvania at a Lancaster, I think. Pennsylvania, Citra, which is just a solid Northeast IPA. New England IPA. I said, I literally said that exact same thing. <laughs> Last uh, episode. Anyway. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> All right. Jesus. Um, so, uh, shots? Gentlemen? Yes. Bing, yes, what's please. your shot? He's got uh, it is the right? dead Nazi. Oh, oh, uh, yes. oh equal yeah, parts. Yeah. Yag, 151 rum and rumple mitts. Yes. All right. Nasty. All right. Dentist approved. Cheers. Dentist. <laughs> wow. I've got a minty back of my nose right now. <laughs> so I've, I've never done before we jump into the book. I've never done a dead Nazi with 151. Neither have I. Uh, generally, I would think of that as a, as the, third reich but you generally have goldschlager 151 just is a dangerous add to that i dig it i like it it probably tastes really great Mm. honestly you don't taste anything except for the rumplements i've never done one with um (laughs) something better than like you know the old ronald diaz so (laughs) the 151 is definitely very helpful in actually making it a palatable shot fair enough versus just mouthwash yeah, yeah. Dead Nazis for me when I was in college was always just Yeg and Rumplemans. Yeah, in equal parts, and that got foul quickly. Out of hand, a murder. It got out foul. of hand. It got out of hand for sure. I remember uh, loading up a flask with it, taking it to a dance that we had on campus. <sighs> poor, before, poor idea. Before we get really into the book, I would like to just say that flasks are maybe mankind's best invention. <laughs> and we don't give them enough love in uh, public spaces. Just That's, throwing it out there. I can't remember the last time I actually used one other than like sneaking alcohol into venues where I shouldn't have alcohol. That's like, the I've, best time to have alcohol. I know, I know, but... <laughs> it's the best time to have a flask. It's not necessarily the function of a flask, though. Right? The flask is whatever you need it to be. Uh, all right. Fair <laughs> enough. Good point. I I definitely agree with that sentiment. <laughs> okay, so with that, we got a we got a lot to a lot of fun stuff to cover today talking about this first book here. I guess like the first thing is like I kind of want like a quick minute reaction out of each of you as to how you felt at the end of this book, kind of some general thoughts. I felt a lot. I had a lot of feelings at the end of this book, and I didn't expect that. I wasn't used to getting that sort of emotionally attached to any sort of like written character. I, I don't know. I don't know what (laughs) there was good feelings and bad feelings with every single decision at the end of the book. Like, and I couldn't, I couldn't really nail down what I actually thought for most of it. Is that your reaction to the whole book or just like, I'm not necessarily just saying the end of the book, but like the book as a whole. Yeah. The book as a whole. I, I really 
really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the story and mostly I'm excited to see where it goes from here. We've talked a little bit about sort of the actual like sort of writer's legs that he was growing at the time. Mm-hmm. You could tell that it evolved throughout the story and got better and better. So I'm excited to see the progression as it goes forward. But I enjoyed the hell out of the story. Cool. Bing? So to preface this, I read the entire book in the last 36 hours. <laughs> so everything is burning fresh in my brain. <laughs> like no scene goes unturned. It's more like I binged an epi- like a season of Dexter than I actually read a book, you know, in comparison to high school where I would sit there and read for two and a half weeks and read eight pages. So <laughs> you wouldn't um, read eight pages. No, nah, I wouldn't read it. But <laughs> my opinion going into this was that I wasn't expecting a whole lot. And as I got closer and closer to the end, I felt that I was starting to empathize with characters outside of our main character, which is such a stark contrast from where I started this book, you know, reading about the Reds and all of the, the toil and hardships that they go through being brought into the world of the golds and seeing that their hardships while different are still valid, but then also knowing that their hardships are just basically a kicking off point for how powerful they're going to be. And so going on that, I really only cared about two characters or three characters at the end anyway. And I was delighted where Mustang and Darrow end up at the end of this first part of the story. And I'm excited to see where they end the overarching story, but I just have a bad feeling about what comes next. <laughs> that's that's a that's a great that's a great exciting summary. I, I can totally I can totally relate with both of those. So I think what's what's really interesting is I do agree, and it, maybe maybe we should also address this on the front end. I know Bingham originally you did start this like two or three weeks ago. And you slogged through the first 50 pages Mm -hmm. and really didn't like it. And that's not that dissimilar from the way that PJ felt when we read that first section as well. It's not necessarily like it it just it the style feels weird. There's a lot of space without a lot of things happening. And there's some cool shit that should be described better. I feel like that's just something we should talk about real quick. Yeah, and I will say on those first 50 pages, so I reread them. And to me, it really felt like they were written four years before the rest of this book. Like, you know, he wrote those and he had a story idea it, and it wasn't really quite does. sure where it was going to go. So to anybody who is listening to this episode and you're trying to recommend to other people how to get through those first 50 pages, have them listen to the audiobook for the first 50 pages. Because that's yes. what I had to do in order to absorb any of that information without being annoyed. And then once you get to part two you can pick it up and start actually turning the pages yourself yeah i i totally don't disagree with that bingham the first time i think i mentioned this on the podcast the first time that i listened to slash read this book i listened to the entire thing on audiobook the narrator is incredible and he does a great job of adding drama to something that otherwise when you actually read it feels pretty bland what i will say is revisiting it it is far more interesting on a second go round but I totally get the feeling, the tonal difference, the sort of Hobbitshire slowness of the first 50 pages. And the rest of the book feels jarringly different. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with you. I actually just listened to today in preparation for this. Got done with work, 
and just opened up the audiobook and figured out how much time I had left be- before recording and ended up listening to the last three and a half hours of the book. Wow. Um, just straight through, um, which started at started a little bit before the first confrontation with Apollo. So I, I was re- going to say, re-listen to all that. Basically, essentially the last episode's worth of hmm. reading. No, I, I think you might have gotten a little bit more than that because I got I mean, I, I did the same thing as well. We all kind of at this point binge the, the book in the last day or so to varying degrees, not yeah. as hard as Bingham did. Some uh, of us but, more than others, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I also listened from, I think, 39 forward. So really just the last section of the book. So you must have started 38, 37-ish, but I didn't quite hit the end of the book. Okay. So, yeah, by comparison. But yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, so I, I also feel like it warrants since we've all listened to the audiobook to talk about Tim Gerard Reynolds, the fucking narrator. He's good. He's money. Yeah, really he good. he is somebody I would like to, you know, shake their hand, buy him a drink, maybe see if he has a daughter, like that kind of situation. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, what you need to do, Bingham, is you need to do days since I wasn't single as like, you know, like the days since last Velociraptor attack memes. You need yeah. to do that and like update your banner every day or something. I'm going to need a lot tweet. of post-it notes. <laughs> it's a great idea. I love it. You have a computer. Yeah, digitally create them. You don't need right. post-it notes. You guys don't understand the effect of post-it notes. <laughs> <laughs> there's a physicality to it, just like there's a physicality to the book. Exactly. Tim Gerard Reynolds is a phenomenal narrator. I actually, after I finished the first three books, I immediately, with my Audible credits, bought a couple of other books that he had narrated that I hadn't even heard of because I was like, you can make anything interesting. I like this premise. I like this idea. So I just like grabbed books that he did because he's such a good narrator. Mm-hmm. All right, so I I have a question for you two. Yeah. Going into this episode, which is more of a recap, what were your favorite moments from this story? Like, what did you read that really hit you and you wanted other people to understand the impact it had on you and things of that nature? Hmm. Man, so mine's mine's easy. It's actually the next thing in my notes, which is the the line from the jackal on page three forty seven, which is in the final episode, final section that we cover. The line: "Humans are always negotiating." That's what conversation is. Someone has something, knows something, someone wants something, and just this sort of like idea of the exchange of information. It's so basic, but the way that he kind of says it, and the way that he's such a maniacal manipulator he's in the story to the same like as little as darth vader is in the first star wars and has the same sort of dread and impact to me i absolutely love the way the jackal is written and i did not expect that to be so shocking and so jarring and it's a character that i like take away as a highlight of this first book Mm mm-hmm yeah, he was definitely one of the most well-introduced characters that you really learn nothing about. Right. <laughs> like, all he is in the entire book is infamy, and you have maybe three pages worth of actual interaction. He's, he's the boogeyman. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, he is the boogeyman. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you, Cross. That definitely hit hit hard as far as the sort of intricacies of the intellect of the jackal. But my favorite was the... Uh, Dead horses. Oh yeah, that's a good scene. Oh, yeah. It's such so a good scene. Good. That whole scene, the whole fight 
including the sort of show leading up to it. Mm-hmm. So good. With burning the fields and the, the circles mm-hmm. and everything else. And, and sort Darrow of the, still fighting and like finishing his fight. Doing it because he wanted the pride of the victory. Right. So, so fucking good. That's that's another good call out. That's a moment that stands with me. Mm-hmm. What about you, Bing? What's uh, one I, of those? So my, my favorite moments were the ones of pure defiance. Sure. All right. I love, uh, I just love rooting for somebody who probably shouldn't win and knows they shouldn't win and are still going to win. So the ones that stick out to me are the campfire scene with Apollo where he comes mm-hmm. in and they throw down the jammer and all of the other proctors are watching their conversation. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Severo and everybody else is ransacking the castle and just taking it over. Mm-hmm. I love those moments where if you go back and you read four paragraphs back, you understand the slight hints that have been dropped as to what's going on well before the proctor will know. And you can pick that up, which I just, I loved to see that kind of thing. So that was one of my absolute favorite scenes. My other favorite scene, and this might've come from me having read it all like instantly instead of taking breaks or anything of that matter. I picked up on the relationship between the jackal, right? And his sister Mustang. And you could just see it in the parallels in the quick scenes with Lucian, you know, where they talk, they use the same slang and they use the same coupled phrases and all of those things. So I picked up on that and going forward, I was really excited to see the fruits of that because they don't tell you for another 60, 70 pages of what's actually happening in those scenes. And I just really enjoyed that kind of buildup. And those are my favorite moments where you got to see the fruits of that labor a couple pages later. If you go back and read or listen to it again, it gets even more intense. I was going to bring that up um, as well. There are so many hints about Mustang's lineage that Mm -hmm. go completely, not even completely unaddressed. For example, Apollo is talking and Mustang gives some snarky comment and he says, you of all people should understand this. And Darrow's comment is, I don't understand what he means, or I I don't understand his, uh, his comment or his reference or whatever it is. But like, there are several of those leading up to the reveal that go completely under the radar if you don't know what you're looking for. Like if you don't already know, mm-hmm. it feels almost like misdirection because it it feels like so much connection, but no specifics. And it just leaves you wondering what's going on. Yeah. So to laud a little bit of praise on Pierce Brown, it's really difficult to do that in first person perspective and not feel like it's cheating. And so to lay those hints through other characters' dialogue is genius, right? Mm. And and because you're only you are only allowed to inhabit in first person Darrow's perspective with the way the story is written. So we're, if we're only in Darrow, how do you lay out the hints effectively? And Bingham's totally right. You lay that out through language. You lay that out through random connections like the Apollo the Apollo conversation. There's a lot of that that happens. My my next question to kind of go off that is knowing and understanding that that's a theme of Pierce Brown's writing. What do you think he's laid hints for towards the next book? Mm. All right. So the couple things that I am expecting to see fruits of in these later chapters and later books are 
these sentences where you can see, let's see, so the Mars Proctor, right, Severo's father, he's saying things that sound almost like he's acquainted with the Aries and the Aries movement, right? Sure. Yep. He's he's putting forth these ideas where he keeps telling Daryl, he's like, this is a terrible idea. You should not do this. This is not like the other proctors are against you. But when they're up in Olympus, he's like, I knew you could do this. He's like, I knew you were the man for this job. And so you're starting to see hmm. that in a way he is also trying to test Darrow and test his metal and see how hard he will bend and what he will break where the accolades he gives him are only such because he had to break what he was told, even by the person telling him, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Totally. And I think to go back to the earlier point of laying that in, I think that creating the slang that is non-native to any part of the world, such as, you know, bloody damn, gory damn, it still gets the sentiment across that people can understand of goddamn and, you know, whatever else you want to say. But when you inlay it with that other type of slang, people's brains don't make that connection right away. So even though if you translated it for what he wanted, the sentence is the same. Your brain does not necessarily recognize that. And it doesn't even see it as foreshadowing because of that language change. I'm, I'm, so I'm really with it. I'm, I'm intrigued by your idea about Fitchner as some form of a member of Aries. What I would say in sort of counterance to some degree, my goal here also is not to hint or ruin or, you know, I, I'm really here to ask questions and jog them in you guys. I, I think that I see where you're coming from with the illusion going forward to where Fitchner stands. I also see it as a potential that he chose him to win for House Mars because House Mars is a winning house in the Mars Institute. And I see it as that as well. But wouldn't you say that about your your student no matter what if you won? You know, like yeah. you, you picked him early. Sure, he was your first draft. Sure, for the house. But I think that, you know, I think that's actually a really important part, though. The fact that he was the first pick. Yeah, I so think, I do. I think says a lot more than you're making it out to be. Oh, you're saying so you're saying first pick for Fitchner is more important. So sorry, I do have a question. And maybe you two know the answers. The Proctors were not the drafters, correct? Fitchner did not draft them. I thought that they were only running the experiments or tests. No, so Fitchner, all of the Proctors were drafters with other people who are also drafters with the house. Okay. It was so if you think about it like a, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a committee. It's just like a, a football draft, right? Isn't just one person on the team. It's the entire team of coaches getting together and being like, Hey, who should we pick? So like Lornow Arcos is a big person who's highlighted as helping choose Darrow. Right. Uh, for Mars. So, All right, PJ, I would love to hear your take on that then. Yeah. So I'm not sure about Fitcher. I don't think necessarily that he knows, but I think the Rage Knight does. So you think Arcos does? Yeah. Warren. Yeah. There's there's a comment towards the end. He's the one that gives him the, the ring or gives Fitchner the ring to give to him. With the, Yeah, he gave him the, the Pegasus amulet. Yep. And the not just the Pegasus amulet, the uh the hidden blade ring. The hidden blade ring was Fitchner originally, but it was given back to him by Fitchner again. I, I thought there was some sort of hint that Lorne 
is the one that gave it to the Fitchner to give to maybe maybe I'm I I also do recall the hint that he was trying to basically pull in Darrow to be his apprentice yeah. um after the institute PJ you're totally right and 100%. Bingham you're also right it it was Lorne that handed off the ring back to Fitchner yeah but I'm getting off track I don't think Fitchner is necessarily involved with the sons of Ares right now but I think he could be in the future. And I think that will come through Severo. Interesting. Clearly Severo knows something because of his editing of the footage between him and Apollo, where he says bloody damn, where he says bloody right. damn. I, I, do think, I do think that Severo already knew. Mm, I think, I, my, the, I think the Severo reasoning- had some ideas and knew something was off about him. I don't think he necessarily knew that he was a red. So here, here's my... My strung out theory of okay. somebody who has not read any Reddit forums. You've read or as much as I have. Likes. So, yeah, yes. let's hear it. So, I believe that Fitchner let Severo know about the Sons of Ares and that whole thing. And in that initial scene when they're traveling to the Institute, Severo is trying to size up the people in the cart who are not members that he knows, right? Obviously, he knows Cassius and Julian. He knows all mm-hmm. of these large names, but somebody whose parents are dead and he does not know, he has no interest in until after the passage. And then after the passage, they become almost inseparable. Even when he runs off on his own during the beginning phases when Titus is taking over, he, or Severo, sorry, is still paying mind. He is leaving out packs for Cassius and Darrow to find that he obviously came over. He leaves sheep's or uh, wolves pelts. There is so much stuff that he's obviously trying to leave to form that friendship. And then once the howlers come in, he immediately aligns himself with Darrow. Yeah. Which makes me think that, that he knows the importance of it. And he already knew about bloody damn. He knew why Titus had to die. Hmm. Okay. I, I am curious about just the existence of the phrase bloody dam and how well that's known by golds in general. That's interesting. I have input that's outside of this book, okay. so I'm going to hush my mouth. Yeah, yeah. Fuck you, Cross. Shut up. Bingham, what do you think? Do you think do you think they know about, yeah, so. about the low speak and the specifics of it? I do for a couple of reasons. In the scene where I believe it's Mustang rides by when Darrow is trying to learn how to ride a horse for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. In that, that yep. initial scene, he lets off a word. I don't quite remember what it was. I could look back, but it's early on where obviously she calls him a pixie. She says, you don't really know how to ride whatever as she saunters past. And he murmurs under her breath or under his breath and he it starts to feel like he's found out because anybody who is who he is should be able to ride a horse. And so going on from that, I feel like like he had to withhold that, you know, kind of image because she would know that he's not really truly a gold. Though, though that excuse is pretty easily explained by his fake backstory of being sort of an off world family. Right, right. Like, they, they probably never had access to horses there. Like, I, I could see that being a very valid excuse. For okay, me. that's true. I, in my brain, I was thinking that all resources were 
moderately equitable where access to horses and the same types of foods and things had to be roughly the same due to just the nature of things. But I guess that can be definitely fallible considering packs trained with the obsidians. Right. Right. And I, I completely like the way I understood his fake backstory was that he was, he wasn't even planet side at all. He was on a ship sort of, off in an asteroid belt right so more than reasonable yeah which which kind of feeds into the the conversation about you know obviously mustang and darrow's kind of initial relationship that has an element of fallacy to it right mm-hmm. which is interesting i think i think what's more interesting is the fact that mustang all right all right here Here's the question. Is it coincidence that Mustang was singing EO's song the first time they were really like Oh, you're still on intimate this. together? Dude, I just fucking ed- edited the back half of episode five and you talked about this for 35 minutes. I I'm sure I did because it's I think it's bigger than we're making it out to be. All right. So I will say I, I think cut it down to five anyway. Sorry. You should because it's so, a, it's a I did. I already did. It came out today. So uh, okay. <laughs> I I think that her singing that song is not planned per se. I think that she it's it's kind of a recency bias, right? So they said that EO's song was broadcasted all throughout the land, right? And her yep. father was at Persephone's that, song because Oh yeah, I was I was just saying yep. the song EO was singing. Yeah. Persephone's song, called it Persephone, whatever. Mm-hmm. you want to say about that mustang's father or you know virginia if you want to call her that was there right he augustus was, yep. yep augustus he was there he sentenced it he was a hard part of that and i think that as any child would you're moderately interested or you know about the goings-on of your parents you know what happens even if you don't care and so i think that at some level, it was just recency bias, and she was singing this song because she had recently heard it, and she knew it from her childhood, but nothing more of it. Okay. Okay. I could I could see that. Yeah. The, the thing could, that I'll say that is really that. interesting to go off that, too, to kind of feed into what you're saying, Bing, is the the song is illegal for Reds to sing but it's not illegal for any other color to sing. Like it's not, it's not problematic. It's only problematic because it's inspiring to the red people. And I, I think that gets back to kind of the baser elements of the story to some degree, talking about themes with, with slavery and whatnot. It, it was a common thing for people in chains to sing songs because that's what they're gifted. And as, as a person who definitely doesn't understand that sort of element of culture, it seems like a, another element to layer on top of society's intentional slavery of the red people you know like from a writer's perspective yeah i i also think not to cut anybody off but darrow being named the reaper within Mm -hmm. you know within the institute where the almost i would say 40 percent of that song is the line the reaper swings the reaper swings right so Mm -hmm. It kind of, he has this nickname before he's even, you know, back, or I guess it's not backstab, Cassius stabs him in the front, very obviously. <laughs> very but, obviously, yes. But even Darrow knows that it's coming. He's right, like, fuck, I'm there's, fucked. There's nothing to know about that. Like, it was not blindsiding of any type. But to be called the Reaper, and then 
this whole overarching story for the whole thing is that regardless of what happens, the Reaper comes, the Reaper comes, he just keeps swinging. He takes down house after house after house and brings in new teammates. And that's the whole song. And so you have to wonder whether or not, you know, they, not they as in the Institute, but they as in the Proctors and as in Mustang and all these other characters that aren't, you know, Cassius and I would say all of his, uh, what do you call them? Lieutenants outside of Pax and lieutenants. <laughs> Shut up. Fuck you. <laughs> in in um, Tactus, like Pax and Tactus. Yeah, are kind of the but two I think that, that all of these it. people, obviously they don't know, but they feel the same need to follow. And that's kind of the whole point of the Ares movement is the Reaper swings. He keeps coming through. And that whole song just kind of overlays the rest of the book. Totally well, fair. I, I could be crazy. No, I could be the crazy. dumbest motherfucker it's- on the planet. And I might read another 150 pages and find out I'm the dumbest motherfucker on the planet. But for now, that's how I feel. So you're not crazy at all. My question is more, or is more, is that connection there for us or is it there narratively for the characters? And that's, I think what I'm calling into question is the sort of experience of Pierce Brown at the time of writing this. Mm-hmm. Was it a little bit what was he being ham fisted with the inclusion of the song or was the song actually an important connection? My brain told me initially that he had a plan for this and it seems ham fisted, but he has, you know, let's say 1500 pages more to explain to us how it's got 4,000 more pages. Yeah. Yeah. 4,000. Yeah. Right. So, okay. I, to- I, was, I was going on like a three and a half or th- like 350 per book, but I. Yeah, no, they, they get big. Okay. Okay. <laughs> in, That's my in bad. short order. Yeah. No, it's, it's good. So, I, I totally agree with you. What I think is really interesting, this is something you even heard because it actually came out today and you were focused on reading the book. We actually talk about this a lot in one of the, in the, in episode five of this series, in which Pierce Brown intentionally writes poetry to feed into characters a lot of the time, but he doesn't typically put it in the book. And this was something he talked about when he was writing book five. I think that this is a kind of an example of either the poem that inspires the story or the story inspired the poem. And it was one way or another, but it does feel very referential. I, I feel like it works almost from either perspective. Uh, and it's, it's hard to tell on a craft side of things. What I do want to talk about real quick is my fun packs fact. So I, I've been holding this in for a very long time because uh, I, I've wanted to talk to this to, to PJ and sort of speak to the brutality of this entire series to some degree. So when it came to Pax in the first book, as Pierce Brown was writing the story, he hit the scene with the jackal and he knew that someone needed to die, but he couldn't figure out which character to kill. So he put a lot of the characters' names into the hat and pulled out of a fucking hat who died, and he killed Pax because it was pulled out of a fucking hat. I'm actually... I don't think you could have made a better choice. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy with how it turned out. The only other one that I would have been, like, totally behind is uh, the Diana's, um, not... Tactus? Tactus, yes, sorry. Tactus, I kept sure. calling him te- Tetanus when I was reading, and I was like, I gotta remember his real name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tactus. Tactus. I so going backwards to 
what episode one or two I kept calling him Servo instead of Severo. So, you know. Yeah, like, right. You're not alone in dyslexia. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think it had to be somebody important, but not integral to the story as a whole. So so here's the thing, PJ, to that degree. He had an integral story built from Pax and the house and the house and house Telemannus building up Darrow and being his like advocate going forward as opposed to Augustus. And when he pulled the name out of the hat, he went fuck and had to rewrite the entire thing. Hmm. So, All right. But, but answer me this. Yeah. If he was so dedicated to that storyline, why did he put Pax's name in that hat? Because it adds an element. No, no. It means excitement. that he wasn't like, it means he had other ideas of where the story could go and that it was. <sighs> Just as like yeah. it happened that way. Like I I think no matter what, it's very interesting. It I just is. feel like that fact is like but Oh, I, you chose to kill this great character out of a fucking a great hat. Character, but also, other than just size and muscle and some comic relief, what does he add? He was he was charisma he in wasn't a positive that, way. He really wasn't that charismatic. He was charismatic no. through his own lack of not lack of intelligence, but lower level of intelligence compared to the rest of the like high picked reds or high picked golds and just intimidation through brute size. Like he, he really wasn't that he, he wasn't a wordsmith by any means. He was, he was endearing and he was, he was a lovable character, but I don't think that necessarily means that he was charismatic. So mm. where where I'll go from what you're saying is I feel like he does have an element of charisma because of his face in the face of challenges. The way that he reacted to like Darrow challenging him is he smiled uh, multiple times when like Darrow had him whip him. It wasn't strictly just because it, he was the largest man. It's because he also knew that other people respected Pax as a sort of violent but kind human and so to put him in that situation i think it i think think they i think it was specifically he's the strongest one here so i'm going to ask for the person who can whip me the hardest to whip me i think that's all he was thinking interesting i i think i think that he chose a person to whip him that looks the strongest and everybody would fear in a physical aspect but that he trusts to know the purpose Similar to how he dismissed people later to go deal with whatever because he knew that they knew they weren't to question the purpose of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. There, There is that element. I, I won't disagree with it. I just, I place a higher value on Pax as a, as a character who has this high degree of honor and sort of heart to him, especially as you reread the story. It's so deeply heartfelt and it's it, without, without Pax to some degree, I don't think Darrow makes it to this point in the Institute. I don't. And, and that might be through brute strength. That might be through a number of things. But I think Pax is also an inspiration to other people, as well as an inspiration to Darrow to fight harder. Like he, he mocked him in combat actively by shouting his name because he's like, it's stupid that you're shouting my fucking name. So I'm going to shout your name at you and then say it's a bloody damn idiot or whatever he, whatever he shouts Gory, back. Probably Gory. Yeah, yeah more right. Probably would not say bloody damn. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> not in um, that context. I just gave myself out as a red. So reading about Pax, 
I don't know. When I read books, I try and draw similarities to other characters that I already know. And mm-hmm. every time I read a line from Pax, I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with the Percy Jackson series. I'm it, very familiar. I'm in, not in familiar that, in the slightest. In that series. Of, er, PJ does not read books. So that, does not, well, no. we can't well, fix I do that. Now. But <laughs> we're, we're fixing that actively. That, actually. That's the point of this. But, so <laughs> there's, there's a character in that series that is the main character, the titular character, Percy Jackson. It is his brother, and his name is Tyson, and he is a cyclops. Yep. He does is he sell chicken? large. Uh, <laughs> no. Fuck you. <laughs> he is, but he is large. He is charismatic. He is, like, physically intimidating, but he is also almost fits the exact same script that you would hope for Pax. He is, he knows his purpose. He knows what he's there to do and he would do it without hesitation every single time. And so I was reading and I was like, well, obviously Pax is the only character in the scene who can literally dive on top and die knowing that it's the right choice. And I was just trying to draw any other parallel and yeah, Tyson is the only other character I could even think of that would be willing to die for your titular character. I think I made like, this comparison with with Pax previously, and listening to the audiobook even kind of solidifies it even more, um, just based on the way that his character is read and his dialogue is read, which maybe isn't fair because it's an interpretation that's not necessarily part of the actual book. But continue, Lemmy and George. So, dude, you actually Ooh. talked about this in an I episode. I in, talked in about episode it five. So you're you're not so you're not wrong. And I I didn't want to address it quite at that point because I feel like there are similar they're plumbing similar emotional depths right depths he, because I, it it gave me the same sort of even though I know he's not as intellectually challenged as Lenny was Lenny or Lemmy. Lenny, he's not like intellectually challenged, but in comparison to all this super high level intellectuals that he's surrounded by, he seems unintelligent just based on the comparison. So I don't know if that's entirely true. So especially rereading it, when you look in, he he is fashioned as a brute. But if you compare him to Titus... Titus seems like an idiot brute to some degree. Out I disagree revenge. entirely. Really? I, that, that's, that's my perspective on Titus. Tac, er, not Tactus. Um, Pax. Pax feels more like, but also he's got this degree of like honor and code and excitement to him that comes through com- combat. He was excited even as a slave to see the Reaper. Like it, there's, there's just this level. It's, it's not, it's not a lack of intelligence. No. It's more I think I think this comes back to like maybe a, a different definition of charisma. I feel like he really embodies what I think of charisma as where he has these core base values that he, he kind of like takes in. He admonishes people who don't follow those core base values and he would be I, I, I think a prime example to say prime <laughs> uh, to, to like point to in, inside of <laughs> stupid uh, to point jokes. to inside of the scene is his like unwillingness to watch the jackal actually carve off his own hand and giving him an eye on plate is like he's unwilling to watch the physical torture. And that's a moment of empathy 
that he took out for the Jackal, who otherwise like hasn't been presented to us as a particularly awful character outside of the necessity of cannibalism to some degree. So um, I, sorry, my my opinion on the the charisma factor is not necessarily on charisma at all. It's on your humanity, and in comparison, in comparison of Pax and Titus. Titus has no humanity, right? Yeah. He is lassoing people off of a wall, pulling them down and killing them. And he can, he doesn't even have the ability to make, draw the line of his followers between like raping their people that they have conquered, uh, their slaves and just being a leader. There's no humanity in that, those decisions. Whereas, Pax has almost complete humanity and morality in that fact because he, as you said, watches the Jackal or Lucian or whatever else you would want to call him. He's got four... Adrius. He's got four fucking names during this whole (laughs) segment. But... So, I, I think I think the one problem with making that comparison is Titus is in as extreme of a circumstance as Darrow is, being also being a Red. Right. So he he is fueled by rage towards this entire class of people. And I don't think it's fair to judge his character as a whole based on his interactions with what he sees as the enemy in general. Right. My my counter to that would be that he sees them as the enemy, but he knows at because he is at this institute, he knows the only way to take down the enemy is in order to become the leader of the enemy. And if you lose your cool 40 seconds into the race, how do you expect to make it 10 years? Oh, you you don't, but... Right, and so he he has no humanity. He has been broken by what he's seen, and he's out for vengeance. Right. And that's the main difference between Darrow and Titus, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's their handling of their rage and it, it, it's not, the lack of not, humanity. That's not even necessarily their difference because they're both out for vengeance. It's just Darrow's ability to curb the need for revenge in order to get more revenge later. Right. If that makes sense. I think that there's a, a line. Yeah, I think that there's a line to be drawn between what we call revenge and what we call change. Because Darrow is going for change where his brother and his nieces and nephews can come out of the mines, right? That's his end game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all Titus is standing for is he wants to kill the class of people or the caste that has been enslaving his kind, right? So we see like a line between vengeance and revenge and a change in the system as a whole. I, I'd say justice and revenge, but I agree with you. Yeah. Well, yes. I, I, I feel like Darrow embodies justice in Titus revenge, but yeah, or vengeance. Titus is either vengeance or revenge, but yes, I would fully agree with that. But Pax is a badass motherfucker and I'm sorry he got stabbed so many times. I fucking know that that scene (laughs) also sits in my heart inside of this book, rereading it every time. It's like, God damn it. Darrow literally wouldn't have made it out of the situation if dying Pax didn't realize that he needed to jump on Darrow to save him. Because he he loved his leadership, he appreciated him so much 
and all the shit that he did over time and his like honor and and Pax just gives such a value to that honor in his like own dying moment he chooses to sacrifice himself for someone else and i think that that's like unmistakable incredible writing on Pierce Brown's part and also an incredible character moment yeah it is man the writing between the first 50 pages and the last 50 pages is like the difference between the magic tree house and Stephen King. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's actually, I agree with you. I feel like it's more like the first 50 pages to some degree, uh, like comparing the Hobbit to return of the King, which is, yeah, which is except, to say, mm, I never read the Hobbit, so I cannot make that. A, like, I, I just can't I, say I that. I feel like the Hobbit I don't know. was really, really well written. It is, but my point is, is that we're talking we're talking about two totally completely different pieces. It's it's like comparing um, the first seventy pages of the first Game of Thrones book versus like page two eighty four and page three thirty six of the fifth book. You know, like you just can't compare yeah. them. My hottest take is that I actually really don't like George R. R. Martin's writing. Oh, I've read his short stories for a long time. I've I tr- I been through two books in game of thrones and i just don't like it not gonna lie that's um, a lukewarm take whatever that is yeah a, lukewarm a take otherwise that completely over my head or expertise yeah that's that's fair so one of the things i want to talk about is kind of the the bros of the whole situation right so i i want to i want to get everyone's feelings on the male characters that have formed this bond over the course of the last 200 pages of the book so that's cassius that's roke that's severo and that's tactus where do we think they're going in the next book i think severo will find himself if not directly within the sort of command of the arch governor somehow in a way in communication with darrow I don't I don't know that he would necessarily get picked up by the arch governor, but I think he could. He's proven himself to be very, very scrappy. He's independently created himself as another boogeyman of the South and was feared by pretty much everybody, despite his stature. So before you continue, maybe it's more pertinent to ask First, where we think the next book is going, and then where we think the characters are occupying the book space. Um, not not to say that your previous answer didn't kind of fulfill that to some degree, but maybe that that's kind of the preamble is where do we think okay. the next book is going, and then where do we think the bros are going? So it was mentioned that Darrow, while being a lancer for the... Darrow being a lancer of the Archgovernor, Brings with it the opportunity to go back to school. Um, I can't remember what the uh, name of the institution was, where he would learn the academy. The academy. The academy. I think the academy is not the next book. I think the next Hmm. book is the interim between, and maybe it ends with him being shipped off to the academy. But I think the next book, the next book is dedicated to his position as lancer before going to the academy so learn some some on the job experience stuff interesting my thought is going into the next book he will be partly at the academy right 
So he gets in School halfway through kind of situation. and yeah, there's some sort of external situation. Maybe, you know, it actually gets leaked about the rigging or the attempted rigging of the Institute or something along those lines where then his sponsorship is called into question or something along those lines where then he is forced mm-hmm. once again onto his own. Right where he has to prove himself because his sponsorship is no longer valid because of the events of the first book, even though he beat those events and chose the person that's going to set him up on the basically the hot seat to power. So if the arch governor is essentially run out of power, right? Mm-hmm. Nero, if Nero is wrong, yes, out yes, of power. Nero. Okay, um, okay. He's in this weird situation where he's his lancer even though he's no longer powerful. Right. And how that will affect the bros, as we say. I have just this itching feeling in my gut that Severo is going to die a brutal death. Ooh. And it's just kind of gives me a gooey feeling in the back of my throat. Gooey. Where it's like you want to throw up because it makes you upset, but nothing else you know i think Mm -hmm. that cassius is going to become more of an antagonist than anything else and maybe by book four or five he will be (laughs) semi-converted where he, he he sees the error of his ways because all right i'm gonna level with you guys if i was in the institute and i knew that I mean, what sibling is the closest to my age? My sister, two years older. If we were in the Institute together and somebody killed her in the passage and they didn't tell me, I would probably stab them in the gut more effectively than Cassius, not a quitter, (laughs) not going to just leave a job half done. But from there, I would probably, you know, eventually have to forgive them because they were put into the same situation she was. And if you're going to live by those rules of merit first survival of the fittest then like damn it's really it's really what is the alternative right like, like they the had alternative no is option. letting julian win so pj you're saying it, like, it is like there's an element of survival of the fittest to this whole thing there's an element no of that, but there's also the element of how can you be mad at me for putting my life ahead of somebody else's in a in a single like man-on-man combat situation like how how can he justify maintaining the rage and maybe it's just the fact that he lied to him or didn't didn't wasn't straightforward about the fact that daryl was the one that killed julian but i don't think i don't think that's what it is I don't think of you straightforward. I, I agree with you. I don't think of you straightforward with the fact that he killed Julian. Cassius would have felt any differently about it no, in the I end. Don't, I don't think he would have. So I, I think I think Julian it would have been a blood feud come to either some way. Sort of grips with the reality of the structure of the school that he went to. So one of my burning questions on that matter of Julian and Cassius and Darrow is that obviously the passage is set up so the top 1% can beat down on the bottom 1%, right? Mm -hmm. And going into this, they knew 
that Daryl was the top 1%, right? He had to go through all of that extra training, testing, whatever. But the proctors also knew that Julian was in the bottom 1%. And being of the name he was in, wouldn't you try and exclude him from the passage as a whole? Wouldn't you I not think, accept him? I don't him? think that's possible. No, I think that it is more than possible. And I think that they chose Julian to get to the rest of that family. They said, look okay. at your son who should have made it through. Look who we paired him up against and forced to kill him. So I, I think I agree with you, Bingham. It, it, there's an obvious politi- politicalization of the death of Julian, which is to say that Augustus only had to gain from the death of, of Julian. And so Augustus pitted <clears throat> this person against the number one draft intentionally as, a, as an element of corruption and also impacted the rest enough? of the relationship. Julian? Yeah. Do you think he was in the top 50%? In general? I think no, he was probably I, I don't, in the I top don't. 1% and they pitted him against somebody else in the top 1%. So, so Cassius okay. actually said that he didn't ever believe that Julian should have been to the Institute, but he was nominated from outside of his family to become a part and was invited to be a part. Okay, and to so reject that is the same as, as being a shamed member of the Institute. So okay. it's, it's this negative paralysis that comes over your family so he I had think, to go I think so that's more of what happened interesting my brain works at it sorry to interrupt it works at it as a matter of julian is in the top two percent and while he is not worthy of the institute because he should not go through the passage right because he's not the upper echelon quite yep he's he's not he a peerless is, guard is, right he is better than everybody below him but he got accepted only due to the fact that somebody wanted him dead to hurt his family and they right. pair him up against anybody else that they think is going to cause a problem so imagine imagine if they had paired julius and cassius or julian and cassius hear, hear me out then in that scenario there is also someone on the on the arch governor's payroll in the mars house right I don't Which think I don't, I don't think of. there's any I don't think there's any other evidence to support that. I don't think that you need the evidence to support it when you see the outreach that he has. Like just because we're not given the evidence directly that he could have influenced that does not mean that he had the ability to. Like being able to reach out to proctors should be unheard of, but yet it was literally not a problem. Like he just pulled Jupiter and Apollo under his thumb without a problem. And I don't think that the people selecting for the passage or selecting for the Institute as a whole would have any problem with bringing in somebody underqualified to be called. Yeah, I guess whether that be the bottom 1% or the top 2%. Who's making the decisions on who's fighting who? Like if it's Fitchner, I would reject your claim. But if it's a committee of other people, I would guess. Right. I, I don't have I don't have any way to refute that. My interpretation was more in line with what Crossland was saying in that he wasn't ever seen as good enough to excel at the Institute and was brought in explicitly because he would be fodder and was nominated because somebody wanted him dead and knew that he wouldn't 
he he wouldn't survive the calling. Right. My my point was that they could have paired right. him up no, against and, and, anybody uh, lower. They brought I, him in to be cold and to create enemies within the House of yeah. Mars. I just I'm one. I, my curiosity is like I think we're on the same page there. It's more did they know he just wasn't good enough, or did they pull the strings to make sure that he was paired against the most capable colleague of his? My my I, I tend to lean Ooh, towards the yeah, idea that okay. he just wasn't capable in general, and they were confident that he wouldn't survive. I I, I agree with that opinion. I feel like he was measured in the bottom fifty percent in the same way that Severa was to some degree. Because Severo was literally like 99th or 100th drafted. And I feel like Julian was similar, but he was pulled early based on family and name. Right. Or earlier based on family and name. Um, that makes it no less brutal. Everything else that we talked about this entire night relating to their sort of exchange. What's interesting, I think, is the way that this exchange obviously shapes their relationship going forward. So we've talked about two of the bros, one of the bros mostly. We've been talking about it as it relates to Darrow and Cassius the most. I'm more interested in what we think is going to happen with Roke, with Severo, and with Tactus going forward. All right, so my Sparknotes opinion on those three. (laughs) My God. Here we go. Very Severo, interested. Dead. Give him mm, 30 chapters in the next book. Dead. Rock. We, or Roke, whatever Roke. you want to call him. I took French, so I'm a little bit classier on the matter. Um, <laughs> he's going to be alive and not part of anything for probably three books. And then he's going to be sprinkled in a little bit later. And then he's going to become really important. Uh, Okay. Tet or tetanus, as I prefer to call him. Tactus. Uh, Tack. No, sorry. Tack. Sorry. Uh, Tack. Tetanus. Tetanus. Tack. Tetanus Tack. will die from a Tack. rusty nail. Tack. <laughs> Tack. Tactus. <laughs> sure. Uh, Tactus. Nope. Tactus Everdeen. He- <laughs> oh my God. Tactus. I will murder you. <laughs> uh, Tactus will be, I think, near to our dear Daryl for a little while and they will then be split and then he will die by the end of the next book. Split on what though? Um, they will be, because obviously one is a Lancer for Nero and then the other one will be drafted elsewhere, right? As one of Daryl's lieutenants within the Institute. So he will be put elsewhere and then they will come together and then he will die. You can't ask me to predict events and outcomes that I don't know, but that is my gut feeling. Okay. I, I can ask you those things. I am actually asking those things. Oh, God. God. God, tetanus is just going to mm. die. So I, I, it's it's interesting to like talk about this entire series. As Bingham, I'm sure you know, I, I don't know if you've talked about this with Dad much, but he don't talk read... Don't with the same Dad. His oh, name shit. is not Nero. Fuck, no spoilers. Uh, all, all told, the series is very binge-worthy, but to, to speak to the development of characters over time, I think your, your character evaluation is appropriate, but I, I want to know a little bit more about what 
you both think about Bingham clearly thinks that Severo's fucked. That um, motherfucker is dead. He is way too cool to make it to another book. I can I can understand where you're coming from. I think he's going to be kind of the uh, secret sauce of Darrow's success going forward. The Szechuan sauce. I think he's uh, well enough connected through his father, who's not like super well connected, but is connected just in general. And the fact that he's probably the only one that Darrow will feel comfortable opening up to going forward actually makes a very compelling argument that it'll be a really important character death earlier on than we're expecting. So, yeah, I'm on I'm on your side, Bingham. So, I will say going <laughs> I, no, no. In my brain, Severo is already dead, which makes it so much easier when I read that, you know, his heart exploded out of his chest or like he shit his intestines out, like whatever. Whatever happens, you know, like <laughs> Oh my God. I leave it. I leave it out. <laughs> yeah. But what I am expecting now, and what I want to know, is about how characters like Harmony and Dancer Ooh. and Mickey come back into the mix because we so they, interesting. They are our only hard connection to what's happening with Sons of Aries, right? As they are. Far, mm-hmm. We we don't know mm-hmm. a lot about the operatives of the Sons of Aries, but as right. far as we know. Darrow's the only one that's gotten out of the Institute, correct? Correct. But so what, what, what I'm hoping is that we get that hard linkage. And once he's out of the Institute and he has power, he is let in on what is like, what's the inner workings? Like maybe out in Pluto, they have one operative. Maybe they have one on Luna. And then you start to see the buildings of an inner network that are actually capable of a takedown. Because I mean, interesting. If if you don't see that internet work of multiple facets, I mean, even the U.S. checks and balances system stops one person from fucking it up too hard, you know? And I would think sure. that an intergalactic union of caste <laughs> systems and, like, motherfuckers who are genetically perfect would also stop that from happening. So I'm interested to see where those Sons of Aries come back in because... I don't think that their story is done, and I think that they're going to lock in additional characters that we've met. I think so, too. I, I think that's actually a really great point to like balance back on to some degree. Is like, where do we think the rest of the Sons of Aries are going to go? We, we have a brief moment. Um, it, it doesn't happen later in the novel, but I feel like it's referenced to some degree. I, I feel like there's, there's always the Mickey line of, I... Someone has to dot God's eyes and cross the T's. Like there, 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 there's moments that are so great with the Carver early on that are. It's so easy to skip by. I, I don't know. I, I hang on to some of those early moments inside of the series. Okay, so I reading obviously, I'm not a part of the podcast team, TM. So I was coming in with questions of my own. And, Which is, well, I'm getting there. So, but what I really wanted to know is reading this, do you actually resonate with a single character? Like, can you actually see yourself in their shoes? Because to me, these people, except for one that I will disclose later, I do not see myself in literally at all. Okay. 
interesting. Hmm. I, I PJ, take 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 time to think about it. Paxton. For me, what I what I really Paxton, of course, he's, <laughs> tall. he's the tall motherfucker. <laughs> tall. I I I me agree with the tall man. Tall. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, now I I think what's really interesting what what you're speaking to to some degree is I feel like I I agree with you. You you said this very early on where you start to feel things for other characters and you care more about the other characters versus Darrow to some degree, and you start to empathize with the people outside of the main narrative. And I feel like that's actually a core feeling, especially in the first book, is I'm not caring so much about Darrow's perspective because he is the hero, god, king, who can do anything with his hands because he's a hell diver kind of man. I care more about the people that surround him and that are kind of the, the augments to his excellence. So I, I think more about Roke. I think more about Mustang. I think more about like Adrius. And I, I, I think more about all these mm. auxiliary characters. And I care a lot more. It's it's unique experience reading through the series because I, I actually I, I, I agree with the majority on this where Darrow, especially in the first book, is not empathetic. Like there's no way to be empathetical with him. So not to nitpick any part of that or anything with that but what i struggled with especially with darrow to be unrelatable was the fact and you just said it where well he's so dexterous and he's the god king himself and it's to me it was annoying like my protagonist in my ideal story you know princess bride-esque immune to poison kind of scenario he still has his flaws where Every time I read, I could do it easily, or I am faster. It was like, so you're telling me that this character has no flaws outside of the fact that occasionally he has flaws when we need him to. And that to me is just, it's not infuriating or anything of that nature. It's just like, it's not reasonable. Like all of these people that he is with have lived their entire lives with these abilities and there's no way that a single one of them has not trained beyond his capabilities of natural talent mixed with training that is non-necessary, right, from hell diving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where, like, in my brain, I would expect Cassius, and I would expect Virginia, and I would expect the Jackal to all be better specimen because learning how to do something within a year no matter the technology versus being born into it, they're never equals. And so that for me, those lines made Daryl unrelatable to me as a whole, where he's like, but I am faster. Like, oh, you are faster than Apollo, the guy with grav boots. And like, uh, he's what fucking probably 50. Like he's been doing this entire life. He's a perfect specimen. I don't know. Not to draw anything away from the characters, just so I, I have no trouble with the sort of like challenges that came from other characters. What I, what I was saying more about is like Darrow has some innate sort of like chosen one. Like I am, I am the God of whatever's going on. He, he, to some degree in my head. So here's, sorry, here's where I was going. It was uh Hercules from Disney. Originally. Yeah, no, Hercules, yeah. but without the awkwardness. You know, yes, like he doesn't yep. have those growing pains or maybe maybe they skip over those growing pains 
with the Mickey and Harmony scenes, but you don't feel it. You don't feel it in the later on. Right. Harmony, Mateo and everything else can like yeah. juggles those those scenes. I, I, just, I agree. With I just you. wish we saw a little bit more of those growing pains of coming into like what you are like. I mean, puberty for me, worst eight years of my life. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, but um, <laughs> fuck me. PJ left. That's good. <laughs> good shit. Uh, but so coming into those terrible nine years, we kind of had to figure out what was going on. And, you know, I would go to church and I would shake hands and they'd be like, God damn, motherfucker. And I'd be like, oh, my bad. Like, I didn't know I was squeezing too hard. But I've this got a dude, tiny little like fish fish wrist. But this dude is just like he's just squeezing hands straight out the gate and it's like you gotta maybe take a break i don't know but so are other people that aren't from his background that's kind of the difference is he he's yes he's being cocky and he's being very uh confident in his abilities but i don't think they're unwarranted and i don't think it's out of place for the society that he's finding himself in right i just feel like he should have an adversary that is above him and I don't think we meet that yet. I, I agree. I agree. Interesting. So neither of you think that. Well, no, no. But the, the adversary above him were the proctors. Yes, yes. But the proctors are more of a, in my opinion, a secondary adversary where you are not to beat them without trickery. Whereas his immediate adversaries in Cassius and the Jackal are under him. He loses to, to Cassius. He doesn't, he, he doesn't know that. And they're, yeah, he loses. He loses. No, no, but, but I was going to say he loses to Cassius purely because he knows he's going to lose. The, he prefaces that entire fight with, I've come here to die. Yeah, but, but because he doesn't have the skills to win. But he, he Not gave because up before the fight up. happens. No, later no, in no, his fights I, with I, the Jackal. I think, that's him, I think that's him being realistic in the outcomes of like what each of their skill sets are. Interesting. He, un- he understands. I, that I agree with PJ on that threshold. Okay. Better at sword fighting than he is because here's, he's more here's, practiced. Here's my two uh, sentences on that. Basically, he that is one of the only situations in the entire book where he goes into it without talking about EO first or without advising a plan. He right. goes into that fight pre-defeated. Every other situation. Where he's going to lose, he's talking about EO, and he's coming up with the plan or talking about signaling his plan, such as with the horses. Mm, that's true. That is the only that's fight where he, he gives up before he gets there. He says, we ride out to my death. Like, come on. All right. So before we jump into a later question, in 30 seconds or less from each of you, I would like to hear... What character you really resonated with to kind of cap off my question as a whole? Starting with PJ. Um, I know I, I made a joke about Pax earlier just from a size standpoint, but I, I actually think I resonate with him the most in general. I have like a, a big presence, so I'm, I'm not necessarily like falling into the background of things in general, but I tend to really just kind of pipe up when something in my sort of realm of expertise comes up. Otherwise, I, I, I tend to like to sit back and listen and take in the conversation that's happening around me. All right. And, awesome. And I, what do you got? I see that with him. Sorry, PJ. Your 30 seconds are up. And <laughs> I, am now, I am now the host of this show. So that's it. <laughs> 
I'm sorry. My personality is just too big to contain. I've I've so quickly been removed from my position as uh, as one of the hosts. Now I I I feel like I very closely relate with Roke, which I've talked about kind of before. But Roke has this like narrative internally where he understands sort of the dirt and the dearth of the system that's around him and is accepting of the sort of societal reality, but also doesn't like it. He doesn't love it. He wants to change it. He's he's kind of willing to fight against it to some degree, especially right now. And and he really thinks that as as his mom has has pervaded this example, he does not agree with her. So I, it feels like actively he's fighting against that. He's choosing decisions consistently over the over the course of the story that are against that. Beautiful. I also understand Cassius's perspective as a betrayed brother, in which I would. Well, you've I never been betrayed. Feel- so let's hit our next question. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, sorry. I should give my perspective. Um yeah, you I should. feel really just the only character I actually feel in line with is Mustang because everybody expects you to fuck shit up, but you know in your heart of hearts that you're not gonna fuck shit up, but you're really gonna make them want you to fuck shit up. And that is Mustang as a character. Also, you're probably um let's how do I put this kindly better than the rest, but <laughs> <laughs> just, just fucking kidding. I'm just She's fucking kidding. If any dental schools are listening to this, that was a joke. J O K E joke. Um, She's also single. Uh, she, well, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Kinda. But, there's, there's no um, declaration, you know. No, no, but but actually, she's the only character where I saw myself like she's very logical. She's very cunning. She makes rational decisions. She is not, you know, a fucking robot. And, um, well, also, she's a girl, so I just really echo with uh, wanting a girlfriend. And next question from Crossland. <laughs> so, <laughs> considering... <laughs> let's, uh, let's take a second to step back. Okay, we're going to step back in now, after the step back. So... What I what I think is so fascinating is our obvious differences on the brothers. None of us talked about Tactus and how he relates in the next story. So I kind I kind of I kind of I kind of want to I kind of want to I kind of want to mention Tactus. Mm, All right. So I think Tactus as Tactus as will a- be part of a different house that will be mostly inconsequential under a different commander, whatever you want to call it. Uh, will be mostly inconsequential, but one time he's going to come in clutch and we're going to be like, yeah, Tactus, I remember that guy from the first book. All right, he's, so... He's going to be like Red 3 or Red 4. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Goes but, down in the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, Red 3 But he took out the shields. <laughs> Tor- <laughs> your torpedoes. Your proton oh. torpedoes now. Yeah. Uh, anyway. He's going to do all the heavy lifting. For one one important thing for Darrow. And then is gonna okay. fall back into obscurity. Bing. Alright, so I'm I might be absolutely fucked in the well, brain. You are, we know that. Because all I've ever watched, like well, okay, you don't need to say it out loud. But I watch Dexter, 
Supernatural, Game of Thrones. Basically, every show I watch, characters die literally constantly, whether it's by the protagonist's hands or not. And so I look at this list of names of Severo, Cassius, Rock, or Roke. Roke. Or, dude, it's definitely fucking Rock. It's Roke. It's French as shit. Um, <laughs> uh, tetanus. <laughs> but so, as I said, Severo, dead. Cassius, gonna be a villain. Rock, probably fucking dead gonna be something of something and then dead and tetanus tetanus is just he's gone i i do not think that they put enough into his character where he can be anything but a shitty villain or a mediocre teammate and so he is just dead in my book he's in my black book have you seen death note i wrote down tetanus (laughs) he's dead tetanus is dead (laughs) interesting (laughs) Could you all of all those people are dead? Shot? Mustang is dead. Darrow is dead. Mustang our, is dead. Our huh? new leader is Clown. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's continue. <laughs> I think they're all dead. Everybody dies. <laughs> we we need to take a, a second to acknowledge the accumulation of hot takes that just happened. Those were lukewarm um, takes at best. They're all dead. No, we call that no. we call that like a mid morning in Texas. Just hot, but it's not too hot. How hot is hot? Seventy uh, four. Winter. Winter morning. All right, so you've got a five degree span. Yep, between hot and too hot, but. That's how I feel those five are going to end up. Okay. If okay. Mustang is single and she somehow figures out how to lead the page, she can just hit me up. I'm, a, I'm into blondes. Those are crispy feelings. PJ, mm-hmm. I need your dipping into the fryer of feelings compared to the crispy takes. Oh, yeah, put, put your ranch dressing on my crispy who, takes. Give, give me, I, I'm not going to go through everybody like he just did who do you want me to well, let's about? let's let's start with like tactus who's a great example tactus, i, I, I think he's to... going to mostly fall into obscurity and um at clutch moments he's going to be he's going to happen to be part of the team and he's going to happen to be clutch. part of darrow's team or is what, like whatever, whatever whatever team darrow is ass- like aligned with at that point i don't think okay. it's necessarily him leading the team but maybe darrow is the linchpin in some plan and he's got something going on. I think Tactus comes and saves the day one time later on, but mostly is just kind of a background character going forward. He he really didn't get as much as much of a fleshed out kind of character arc compared to the others. Sure. Sure. Okay. So the question I would ask you based on the things that we've been talking about is how do you feel about Roke? Where is Roke laying um, on your Roke, perspective? Is he I sedimentary think, or igneous? I don't think he ever sees or seeks out any sort of combat. I think he is very comfortable being in the war room and will will seek out and will train to be more of a tactician i'm not sure who he'll train under but interesting that's my interest that's where i think he'll excel and i think he knows that and i think other people have seen that speaking to each of you what is your favorite character and where do you think they go in the next novel 
Severo. Severo. Okay. Severo, I think is, I think he's the most interesting and compelling character going forward. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was so scrappy about things maybe makes it a little bit difficult to get like a super high um, sought after position, but I don't, I don't think he'll be lacking at all. And I think he'll, uh, he'll be able to, I, I think he'll, he'll land in a position where he's able to sort of exercise his lone wolf tactician kind of muscles. Um, I don't know what that means necessarily in the society outside of the institute but i think i think what it does mean is that he sort of exceeds the expectations of him or his father makes fitchner proud and ultimately rejects any sort of praise that he gets for it hmm. bing is hardcore on the sephiro dies that motherfucker book. is dead simply because of the bonds created with darrow and so, hypothetically, his knowledge of the use of bloody dam, and by sort of extension, his knowledge of Darrow being a red, I think creates a very important confidant for Darrow. I think it creates a very mm-hmm. important, just kind of cabinet member in general. If we're if we're looking at Darrow as the person making decisions, I think Severo is going to be the one advising and helping make decisions based on the fact that he's the one most knowledgeable about who Darrow actually is. I don't think that means he doesn't die. I I, I think Bingham is definitely not making a like baseless claim that he'll he'll die pretty quickly or quicker than we'd want him to. But I don't think that means he can't be important to Darrow outside of the institute as well so my opinion is that he is of so much importance to darrow outside of the institute that he has to die hmm. he is worth too much as an influence and as a resource that he will die similar to like the red wedding in game of thrones pj you're not familiar oh, i have a feeling what do you mean oh, what i thought you didn't read game of thrones oh you i didn't read it I did watch the show. Okay, okay. Well, okay. That's my bad. I was thinking about reading. But all these characters that we are so invested in are so important to our main objective die, and you have to figure a new way. And I think that's the same thing that's going to happen to Severo, and it's the same thing that's going to happen to Roke, and all that whole thing. And Crossland, if you will repeat your question, I will pop off on it. What characters do you think have a stake in the future story? There's a single character that... That's our Darrow, of course. Well, yeah. I I don't actually think I give a shit about Darrow. I'm not going to lie to you. I know he matters, but also I do not care. Maybe that makes me a bad person. Probably does. It's it's fine. It's kind of like when I would like read it, and it's like, I really only care about Beverly. Like, mm, I bad. But here is my position going forward and how I think these characters are going to interact. Imagine that you are like just a beaming prodigy of a child you are fucking killing it on every step of the way and then all of a sudden you lose a game of capture the flag and your dad adopts the fucking winner (laughs) what are you gonna do (laughs) but you are going to fuck his shit up (laughs) not to yell but like that is a character that matters that is a person 
with only a personal identity, and that motherfucker that is now your whatever dad's adopted son is fucking your sister. <laughs> like, that's and he's your Lancer. He's your <laughs> yeah. primary. There, there is yeah. no way that you can think that that character does not have any sort of grit and vendetta against <laughs> our main character. He has a way better personal vice on this than any other person. You can compare like the death of EO to him fucking losing those games, but EO was always going to die. Like there's not a world where she lives. Whereas in any world without Darrow, the Jackal creams those games like his fucking shorts in fourth grade basketball. Alright? His shit is done. <laughs> so his shit was always done. Right. Yeah. You you can't compare the two. He is going to have such a large part in the next, maybe not the next multiple books, but at least the next book in f- fucking everything up. Or they take a Cassius angle on it, and he becomes an ally that he can re- or that Daryl can rely on because it's all about manipulation of power. That is the character to watch. Um, I think that Virginia or Mustang or whatever you want to call her is more than likely a character that will go into later books. And you're going to either start to see a super like deep hardening of their relationship between Darrow and Mustang. And if that's the case, she's going to die. But if it starts to loosen, she's going to make it a couple more. And then it will harden in by like the fifth or sixth book and she'll become part of the rebellion. Those are my predictions. But you can't say that Adrius, the Jackal, Lucian, you can't say that that motherfucker is not going to be part of this story. Because he has more right to be in the story than any other character. Outside of Nero. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, I think he deserves more into the story than Nero does. What is Nero done versus the Jackal? Killed Eo. Nero inspired the entire like core of Darrow. Right, right. And but, Titus but, and everyone else. I, I fully understand that. But I think that going forward... You're fighting a system versus you're fighting a person. The system lives yes. through Adrius. The system does not live through Nero. If the system lived through Nero, he wouldn't have just tried to rig it for his son. It goes through to his son. That's the end point. Yeah. In my opinion. I I and would I agree with you. I think you're skipping over the fact that like obviously Nero would enable it for his son. Well yeah, but, I play yeah. hopscotch like a motherfucker. But you know who's really gonna end all this? Clown. I'm in his <laughs> I'm in his ring. <laughs> Number one. So, so out of the hellers. <laughs> you are full clown. I'm full clown. Thistle's a soft second. <laughs> Thistle. I like that. I like that. That's a good call. That's a good call. All right. So to wrap up this whole thing, what I want to do is I want to both take your favorite moments of the first book and I want you to paste your thoughts on what the second book is. So mentioned earlier, one of my favorite moments was the dead horses. And I think that will maintain itself as one of the most important Uh, defining characteristics of how Darrow leads and how Darrow creates a plan. It was unconventional, but very, very effective and also created bonds between like um, amongst the soldiers and amongst the operatives. It was brutal and it was 
dirty compared to everything else that golds tend to do, but it was effective. And because it was unconventional, it was unexpected. And I, I, I think as Darrow learns to command ships and lead more official regiments of armies and battalions and whatever, that sort of unconventional style will permeate and become an important aspect of how he leads in general, as opposed to just within the Institute. I fully agree with that last sentiment on his ability to lead. And one of the points that I, in the story, that I think points best to that is after they take Olympus and they go to reconquer Mars, they show up and not a single usurper dares step foot against Darrow, right? Mm-hmm. Cassius has nothing to say. He says, just know if we're ever in a room again together, only one of us will leave. He does not yeah. say anything against the power that Darrow has in that moment. He says nothing about Cassius's own ability to lead because they are fighting a losing fight constantly the moment that Darrow leaves. And so I think that that theme is going to carry on into the next book and we're going to see that difference in leading ability and innate ability, letting the lashings come and being able to bring people under your wing versus having people be subservient to you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what differentiates a red leading versus a gold. And I think that that is going to be Mm -hmm. the catalyst for the rest of this story is the ability to rally people versus force people to be behind you. Because a person who wants to fight for you is worth tenfold a person who's forced to fight for you. That's great. All right. So my final opinion on this book, if I, good luck, if I was a rotten tomatoes raider of books, I would read the first 50 pages and say 8%. And then I would read the first 200 pages and I'd say, 70%. And then I would read the last 130 pages and I would say 90%. And I would come out somewhere in the low 80s. I think that the setup for the following stories is worth more than anything that we read. I think that our character buildup is set for heartbreak. And I think that the next four stories, I think that there's going to be one or two more, correct? The series is not finished, right? Yeah, no, no. Okay. So the next five or six stories, I think, are going to set us up for a very grand Shakespearean kind of tragedy. And uh, I'll be there for it. And then when Darrow inevitably dies and we switch protagonists, uh, you know, I'm just (laughs) going to fucking cry my brains out. But not actually, because as long as Mustang lives, the fucking dream rides, baby. Ford 2020. (laughs) That's the, yep, that's it. That's my mantra. Sure, sure. PJ. So I think, I think the fact that Nero didn't approach his own son and daughter and instead approached Darrow is going to be a bigger rift between Darrow and Mustang than expected. I think they'll try to have a relationship for a while and I think it'll ultimately just not work out. I don't know. Mustang will work for him but it'll be awkward eventually things will just kind of grow apart between those two 
I think Severo is going to be a very important aspect to Darrow's life going forward because of the way that he, because of how dedicated he was to him during this story. And the fact that like Fitchner even said, like, he'll do anything for you. Like he, Severo genuinely believes in Darrow and it's whether or not he knows about who he is, is a little irrelevant at that point because they all, they both survived the Institute and I think he'll, he'll get a pretty sweet gig either way. So next week you'll listen to the episode that we recorded earlier this week. Thank you for listening to words and whiskey. We hope you've built up a tolerance to us. Subscribe to us on your preferred platform like Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or whatever else you use. And check us out at our website, wordsandwhiskey.show. We filled our top shelf with our favorite cocktail recipes as well as other important information for you. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at wordswhiskeypod. All those links and more can be found in our show notes. A five-star rating on the platform of your choosing goes a long way to springing us up on them leaderboards and getting us noticed. We're just two dudes helping encourage people to read and get out of their comfort zone while thinking critically about literature. Thanks for listening, and we bloody damn better see you next week.